0: Think about the Bible like you never have before. You're listening to Christian Questions. Experience more episodes, videos, and Bible study resources at ChristianQuestions.com. Our topic is, What Did Jesus Really Think of the Pharisees? Part 2. When Jesus tells you that the path you're on is one that'll bring serious regret, it's probably a good idea to listen. Just weeks before his crucifixion, Jesus delivered several hard and piercing messages to the religious leaders of his day. They did not listen, but we can. What should we be learning? Here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 25 years, and Jolie, a longtime contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for this episode?
1: Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness.
0: Jesus was at odds with the scribes and Pharisees. They stood for traditions that had been built upon the foundation of the Jewish law but were not part of the already complex rules and guidelines that God had commanded through Moses so many generations before them. No, no, no. These traditions were fabrications and were likely in place to separate the ruling class from the people. Meanwhile, Jesus stood for the people. He stood for those who were less educated, less fortunate, and less prominent, as they were the ones most likely to be open to God's grace and mercy. This division came to a head shortly before Jesus was crucified, as he directly confronted these leaders with their hypocrisy. In part one of our series, we began to address the seven powerful woes that Jesus had. Had proclaimed to them.
1: Matthew 23 began with Jesus speaking to the crowd and his disciples with the scribes and Pharisees listening in. Matthew 23 2. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses.
2: Jesus explains that their self-proclaimed positions as legislatures and teachers of the law opened the door to easily
0: develop a double standard, which always made them look good. He cited many examples of this and finished with a powerful summary of appropriate reverence for God's ways.
1: He speaks to the crowd in Matthew 23, 11 through 12. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted.
0: Jesus then turned to the scribes and Pharisees. So he turned directly to them and began proclaiming the woes. And he began with Matthew 23, 13.
1: But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in.
2: And remember, we talked about woe, W-O-E, wasn't that he was cursing them, it was an exclamation of grief, deep distress caused by bereavement. He called them hypocrites, from the Greek word meaning to be an actor, someone who hides under an assumed character, a false appearance.
1: Even though it sounds harsh, Jesus had a reason to be firm and clear with the scribes and Pharisees. His time on earth was coming to an end. They had not realized their sin, and he was giving them one last opportunity to grasp
0: the heavenly calling. He loved them and wanted to show them what was right. Let's very briefly touch on those first three woes from our last episode. The first woe, they shut the door of the call to the kingdom of heaven because it didn't suit their status. It didn't suit their schedule. It wasn't Mm -hmm. what they wanted. So, Julie, what's the problem here?
2: While the self-proclaimed positions of the scribes and Pharisees were steeped in hypocrisy, while sitting in Moses's seat— as they said, they were wielding authority and control beyond their scope.
1: Our personal protection against this kind of behavior? Matthew 5.3 Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.
0: So it comes down to humility of heart. So with each woe, we went back to the Beatitudes and matched a Beatitude to the woe because it gives us a whole different perspective on how to look at things. So that was the first Beatitude that we put together with the first woe. Let's move on to this second woe from our last episode. In the second woe, uh, the scribes and Pharisees found and converted disciples and taught them how to live just like they lived. And that creates a problem, Julie. What is it?
2: The deep hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees zealously expanded their reach and influence through converts whose lives they perverted by teaching them that error was truth.
1: Our personal protection against this kind of behavior, Matthew 5.4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We need to be compassionate towards
0: others. So you've got those two woes in place. The third woe that we talked about in our last episode, they blindly added complexity and confusion to the sacredness of sacrificing before God in the temple, and that created a problem. Julie? Julie?
2: The hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees was so encompassing that they blinded themselves to the higher truths of Scripture and instead taught fabricated precepts of importance.
1: Our personal protection against this kind of behavior, Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Gentleness comes down to being meek of spirit.
0: We have those three woes from our last episode. Now we want to continue and pick up where we left off. So we've got hypocrisy and self-imposed blindness firmly established as foundations for the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees and and their behaviors. Jesus would continue with both power and with clarity. He doesn't let up with these seven woes. The fourth woe is in Matthew chapter 23 verses 23 and 24 and we're reading all of these woes from the new living translation just because of the way it expresses some of the things that we think are important so jonathan matthew 23
1: 23 to 24 woe or what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law scribes and you pharisees hypocrites for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens but you ignore the more important aspects of the law justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things.
2: This is both amusing and deplorable. A Jewish tithe was 10%, and when herbs were donated to the temple, the scribes and Pharisees used a knife to meticulously count out tiny little seeds, yet they ignored the important principles of justice, mercy, and faith. This just wasn't the right balance, and Jesus was calling them out on it. Thank
1: you to our friend Frank Chaloux for this following thought. Many Christians don't have the proper balance either. Many view an Old Testament God as severe and without mercy and of Jesus as loving and speaking peace and liberty. Instead, we should see how Jesus manifested his love for the Father in many things he said and did, pointing out how wonderful the Father is. If we love Jesus, we should love even more the one he loved and reverenced. Continuing with the fourth woe, blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. This is really sarcastic. Again, it's a problem with balance. It wasn't wrong to strain out a gnat, which is attracted to fruit, such as in wine, the winemaking process, but the attention should be given directly to the religious matters. Now, for the camel, a camel is an unclean animal, rick. Is this the continued thought of how the scribes and Pharisees put more weight on placing burdens on everyone as if they are part of the law?
0: So so you're, what you're saying is you've got this camel they're swallowing, and it's a burden bearer. So are they swallowing the ability to place burdens on people? And I think that there's validity to that. But think about the dramatic difference, swallowing a gnat. They don't want to eat an unclean tiny, tiny, tiny insect. And Jesus says, and yet you swallow this massive, unclean animal. You have completely misread and misapplied the things that are most important in terms of what God is requiring of you.
2: This figure of speech showed how inconsistent they were in their reasonings and their actions. A great example of this hypocrisy was when they paid Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus to be killed But then later in Matthew 27, 6, they say, oh, we can't accept this back into the temple treasury because it's blood money. (laughs) And yet they're the ones that caused the blood money.
0: You have this woe that says you are so obsessively working on these things that you've missed the point of what they all mean. Don't get stuck. See what God has given you. And, you know, in our last episode with this, we went to prophecy with each In every woe. Because these things were prophesied beforehand. Prophecy here, once again, is going to show us the lack of attention to the sheep because of the shepherd's self-absorbed focus. We're going to go back to Ezekiel 34. We were in that chapter last week. Ezekiel 34, verses 5 to 6, and listen to how it is condemnatory to shepherds not doing their job. They
1: were scattered for lack of a shepherd,
0: and they became food for every beast
1: of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them.
2: Well, of course, there's no time to search. We're too busy obsessively counting out spices and straining out our water. Don't
0: you see how holy we are? And that's exactly the problem. Don't you see how holy we are by the little tiny things that we continually do in front of you so you can see? It's (laughs) not shepherding. Julie, we've got a problem here. What's the problem?
2: The scribes and Pharisees obsessively acted to follow the minute details of the letter of the law, and they forsook reverencing justice, mercy, and faith,
0: the true reasons for the law. So you have the law given for a specific purpose, and what they did is they avoided the purpose to pay attention to the details that made them look holy. And Jesus does not even flinch at calling this out in this fourth woe, he's telling it exactly the way it is and here's the thing the other thing about this is jesus had already been through this with them he'd already talked to them about this example when some scribes and pharisees challenged jesus about his disciples eating with unwashed hands here's how jesus replied this is in matthew 15 verses three to nine
1: why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of god for the sake of your tradition for god said honor your father and mother But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men." This prophecy was found in Isaiah 29 13
2: and we're going to look at this more shortly but they were criticizing Jesus for his disciples not ceremoniously ritualistically washing their hands before a meal and this wasn't because they were eating with dirty hands this was a man-made custom a tradition that over time became unwritten law
1: and under the law you were supposed to assist your elderly parents financially Instead, the Pharisees were urging people to give that money to the temple instead. Giving the money to the Lord would seem to be the superior need, but not at the expense of neglecting
0: your parents. So Jesus, this is the thing, through his entire ministry, he never shied away from drawing the comparison between doing what may make you look good versus doing what God has required of you. And you're the shepherds, you're the leaders, you're the ones who are supposed to know. You know, it was their obsessiveness versus the genuineness of what was supposed to be happening. And this was nothing new. You had it in Matthew 15, and in these woes, it comes out again and again and again.
1: How do we combat the possibility of becoming hypocrites like the scribes and Pharisees? Do what they didn't do. Listen to Jesus. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied.
0: So we go back to the Beatitudes, and we talk about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so let's pause there for a moment. To Hunger and thirst for righteousness is to vitally search for ways to be in accord with the will and character of God, so we may be nourished. That's the purpose. This includes biblical knowledge and understanding, and it encompasses the moral fabric of daily living a God-honoring life. The moral fabric of daily living a God-honoring life. That's what this beatitude is, is about, and that's what the Pharisees were far away from.
1: So it all comes down to either being God-honoring versus self-honoring. As we continue, we will see that the self-honoring of the Pharisees gets bigger and bigger. Yeah,
0: it does. It does. And here's the thing. Jesus' own life powerfully relayed the depth of the moral fabric of this righteousness that we had just talked about. We're going to look at Psalm chapter 40, verses 9 through 10, which is a prophecy that really explains the character of jesus psalm 49 through 10.
1: i have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation behold i will not restrain my lips o lord you know i have not hidden your righteousness within my heart i have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation i have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation
2: I have a question. Do we see any evidence that the Jews in Jesus's day learned the love of God through the Pharisees?
0: You know, that's a really good question. And I'm thinking it through. I don't, I can't find an example in my own mind. Now, maybe something tiny exists, but I don't know about it. All right. So, so, and that's the thing that we need to understand is they're the leaders and yet they're not showing the most important thing. They're not bringing you to the most important point. Jesus, on the other hand, spent his entire life doing that. Let's wrap this particular woe up. We have seven woes and seven lessons. Jonathan, where are we?
1: Godly perspective must always be the foundation for the thinking and actions of any who proclaim loyalty to God, especially for leaders. Obsessing over the details that make you look exceptional to those whom you are tasked to lead not only disengages you from godly leadership, it also makes you vulnerable to destructive and godless patterns and conclusions. Rick and Julie, this is great advice for Christian leadership today.
0: It is. And the key is, we need to pay attention and follow that advice. Overall, this is a disturbing reality check. How often do I focus on what makes me look good instead of focusing on others?
1: Such obsessive actions that are so self-centered are telling.
0: What did these actions lead the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, it's obvious that Jesus is revealing what the slippery slope of misplaced priorities looks like. Let's run through these woes again. The first woe introduced the hypocrisy of shutting Israel out of the call of God's heavenly kingdom because it didn't suit their needs.
2: The second woe revealed them building on that hypocrisy by recruiting others to their side, subjecting them to a deceitful life.
1: The third woe showed them to have a self-inflicted blindness as they ruined the sanctity of the temple and worshiping God by adding impossible details to their rituals.
0: And the fourth woe that we just discussed showed an obsessive focus on personally displaying compliance with the law at the expense of those they were supposed to lead. And that's the key to everything. It's all at the expense of those that they were tasked to lead. So, now with that in mind, that's pretty depressing. Let's go further into that depression, shall we? And let's go into the fifth woe. Jonathan, let's go to Matthew 23 25 to 26.
1: Woe, or what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, scribes, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too.
2: Again, it's all about looks with them. It's not wrong to clean the outside of the cup, but cleaning the inside first is more important. He compares them to a dirty cup, but their dirt is greed and self-indulgence. Other translations use extortion, robbery, excess. And this is not how trusted religious leaders should be described. No one had ever spoken to them like this, bringing to light and publicly criticizing their obsessive rituals and hidden motives. No wonder they didn't like Jesus.
0: And and you're right. That's a striking thought that no one had ever—no one had the courage to do that, because they had so successfully elevated themselves above and beyond the rest of the people, except for John the Baptist, except for John the Baptist, who— would point them out very, very emphatically. What Jesus did, though, is Jesus went into incredible detail and exposed all of the pieces of what John said, hey, it's there. This is a revelation, and you're right, this is different for them. Let's look at another prophecy in relation to this fifth woe now. But this time, the prophecy focuses on what happens to the people When they are led and influenced in the wrong direction by their leaders. So let's look at Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 through 11.
1: Here are the results of bad shepherding Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord.
0: Boy, that is a very harsh statement, and it sounds very familiar, doesn't it? That last statement. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Jesus takes those words and lays this corruption directly at the feet of Israel's spiritual leaders. When he cleansed the temple in Matthew 21, what did he say to them? Well, in Matthew 21, 13, here's what he says.
1: And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's
0: den. What he's saying is going back to the cleaning of the cup. You clean the outside. And you know, if you put a bunch of teacups up on the shelf and they all look bright and shiny and clean, right? And everybody looks and say, oh, look at those nice little teacups. And if you left dirt and, and gunk and scum on the inside, nobody's going to see it if you're just looking at the cup. But well, You pick up the cup. Do you want to drink tea out of that cup? No way. No. <laughs> they were making things look good that really weren't. What's the problem? Julie, what do we have?
2: The scribes and Pharisees were all about appearance. Mm-hmm. They hypocritically and blindly hid their flawed characters behind this squeaky, clean teacup, behind this look of cleanliness. They proudly drew attention to the actions of their ceremonial cleanliness while inwardly living lives of greed and self indulgence.
1: In our time, think about how many leaders of major denominations of Christianity have been plagued by scandals of money and immorality deceiving the people by looking clean on the outside but being secretly rotten and ungodly on the inside appearance can
0: cover up truth that's such a stark example but it's always been true and unfortunately in christianity throughout the history of christianity it's always been true so Jesus showed us how to recognize these things. It's such an important thing. Now, here's the thing, and I keep saying that. Here's the thing, okay? It's a Rick thing. Here's the thing. Jesus had thoroughly explained this principle to both of his, his followers and to the scribes and Pharisees about what's on the inside being the most important thing. Let's look at how he describes it to his followers in Matthew fifteen seventeen to 20.
1: Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man.
2: In other words, following rules and traditions at the expense of morality is unacceptable. Such a simple statement.
0: <laughs> it's such a simple, clear statement. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying, but nobody was listening. So he explained it to his followers. This is, this is a principle. You need to understand that the heart dictates what's real. And if you put something on on the mm-hmm. outside, it's not real God knows, and you, you really do know. So let's look at how he explained this to the leaders of his time. In Mark chapter 7, let's just look at verses 1 to 2, and then verses 5 to 8. The
1: Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands?
2: As we mentioned before, this was that ritualistic, ceremonial hand-washing that they made up. Why aren't your followers doing what we
0: say they have to do? And see, and that's the point of this. They were so convinced that their words were equal to God's law that this was a big deal for them jesus of course knew better and jesus not only did he know better but he knew exactly how to disarm such an argument so let's look at what jesus says as we continue with verses six to eight
1: and he said to them rightly did isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far away from me but in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God,
0: you hold to the tradition of men. So Jesus, again, quotes Old Testament prophecy, and then says, and he sums it up, you neglect the commandment of God, and you hold to the traditions of men. You've put them on an equal basis, and because you focus on the traditions of men more than than the Word of God, you've actually taken the Word of God, the commandment of God, and lessened it, and made your traditions that much more valuable in your own eyes not a good place to be
1: how do we combat the possibility of becoming hypocrites like the scribes and Pharisees do what they didn't do listen to Jesus Matthew 5:7. blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy in the Pharisees we see harshness judgment and condescension Compare that to the blessing and being merciful in the Beatitudes.
0: You know, you have this big conflagration when he speaks these woes. It's like, boom, this big explosion. And then you have the simplicity and quiet beauty of these simple Beatitudes. And it helps to put things exactly in order for us. Blessed are the merciful. To be merciful is to be compassionate. It's to express kindness beyond what fairness calls for. That's what it means. There could be no mercy if not for justice, as it is undeserved compassion upon one deserving a negative consequence. So the concept of being merciful is going beyond the normal consequences and lifting people up is exactly the opposite of what the Pharisees did. So for us, acting with true and heartfelt compassion is simply not possible It's not possible when we are distracted by our own personal appearance. So if we are going to be all about, what is this going to look like? What is this going to look like? Am I going to look good? You have lost heartfelt compassion. The compassion you are about to express is just for show, just like the Pharisees. So we want to be careful. And here's the thing. Jesus never had this problem. And that's the beauty of this. Let's look at Matthew 9, 10 to 13. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining
1: at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. And then he quotes from Hosea 6 verse 6. I desire compassion and not sacrifice,
0: for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. And there is a little bit of sarcasm in Jesus' words there, because he's saying, Look, you think you're all so healthy and well? You don't need me, because you are so perfected in your own process." But I came for those who, incidentally, you're supposed to be leading. I'm adding this, okay? You're supposed to be leading. You are supposed to be guiding and bringing up to this higher level. Those are the ones I came for. You're fine. You're fine. But just go read Hosea, your prophet that says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. And just meditate on that for your own life. Because they lost the capacity for compassion by being all about how they looked. You've got to see the power of the destruction that they had brought upon themselves with these things. Jonathan, seven woes and seven lessons. Let's wrap this one up. The
1: scribes and Pharisees were driven by outward appearance, and this approach hid their self-indulgent and flawed characters from the average person. The average person was fooled. But Jesus knew what was beneath that shiny veneer. Let us be wary of too much focus on how things look and be driven instead by how we take opportunities to be giving and compassionate beyond fairness to those around us. Rick and Julie, building others up is the key and being selfless.
0: What we want to do is we want to avoid the selfies of the scribes and the Pharisees. We want to avoid always saying, hey, look at me. Look at this pose. Look at this pose. Look at this. Mm. That's what Jesus is saying brings you away from the core of what God looks for in each of our lives. The stark contrast between Jesus and these religious leaders, it's almost unfathomable. Hypocrisy and blindness are true tools of disaster
1: Jesus seems to be systematically revealing all of the reasons that the scribes and Pharisees rejected him what comes next
0: well these last two woes focused us in on their obsessive and deceptive actions regarding tiny details of the law and their habit of hiding their flawed characters beneath a bright and shiny facade Jesus next will go even further as he's about to reveal that such actions and characters, such actions and characters are inevitably driven by consciences that have lost all spiritual sensitivity. That's the next point Jesus is going to make. He's, he's showing the outward symptoms. And here now, he's going to show us that their consciences were null and void, essentially. Let's go to the sixth point woe Matthew 23 27 to 28
1: this is our theme scripture Woe, or what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law scribes and you Pharisees hypocrites for you are like whitewashed tombs beautiful on the outside but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness.
0: This is very, very significant. So, Julie, let's get some commentary on this.
2: Well, we looked up Albert Barnes's Bible commentary, and he said this. Those tombs were annually whitewashed to prevent the people from accidentally coming in contact with them as they went up to Jerusalem. The law considered those persons unclean who had touched anything belonging to the dead. Now, this would have been done, Rick and Jonathan, before Passover week, when a lot of travelers were coming into the city. Have you noticed Jesus is getting stronger and stronger in his picture language? He just said they were like dirty cups inside. But now we're at the point where their insides are all just death and impurity. They don't even feel guilt. There's no life inside them. It's just a pile of bones. These people were supposed to stay away from the literal tombs. Now Jesus was saying people need to stay away from these
0: leaders. That's the veiled message here. You know, you say, well, you look beautiful on the outside. So it's like, hey, yeah, we look beautiful. Wait, 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 wait. Why was it made to look beautiful? To get your attention— so you stay away because inside is only corruption so jesus is essentially saying you are those who have adorned yourself in such a way that's a good signal for us when we see that outward adornment we stay away so it's very very powerful why is jesus so blunt because prophetically he was shown these things and then he observed them in real life and put all that together Prophecy, again, shows us the results of such destructive and unholy leadership of God's people by those whose consciences were broken. If you have a broken conscience and you're in a position of leadership, those you lead are in deep trouble. Back to Ezekiel 34, verses 9 to 11.
1: Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out.
0: So basically the prophecy is saying they have a terminal contract because they have so mortified what is supposed to be important, and I will seek them out myself. And this, and this, is, this is Jesus coming. This is, this is his presence to draw whoever would listen to him out from under the thumb of the scribes and the Pharisees. So Julie, let's describe the problem here.
2: The scribes and Pharisees were without conscience. They're spiritually clueless. They likely had digressed so badly that they couldn't even comprehend that all they were offering to the people was a human greed-based advice. Their hypocrisy caused them to leave the true law behind.
1: Today in churchianity, those that preach the prosperity gospel look just like this hideous behavior. They wave scriptures in front of the congregation to manipulate them. These kinds of shepherds are not actually feeding their sheep. The sheep are spiritually starving and being taken advantage of financially. These leaders are called wolves in sheep's clothing.
0: Yeah, and you know, unfortunately, we've seen... I've seen personally too many examples of people who were of limited income and on a fixed income literally and being conditioned to believe, i got to give to the church or else or else or else, and they couldn't feed themselves. And, and this, we have to be aware. We have to be aware of the principles that Jesus is bringing out so we can understand the power of godliness versus the treachery of selfishness. I mean, that's really what we're looking at here the power of a god-directed versus self-directed conscience because this really is all about what's the conscience inside of us the power of one versus the other is plainly revealed throughout the bible we're just going to touch on two verses here first old testament jeremiah 17 9-10
1: the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick who can understand it i the lord search the heart i test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds.
2: You asked who can understand the heart? Well, that's a rhetorical question because obviously God understands, but the individual, and we think of this as ourselves, we don't know our own heart unless we have the mind of Christ and of God that enables the person to see the wickedness and their desperation. We said last week that the Pharisees didn't see a need for repentance Because they were already doing everything right in their own minds. Therefore, they had no need for Jesus.
1: This is about the conscience that drives us. Psalm 139, 23, and 24 reads, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting.
0: So you have the issue of my heart. And scriptures speak very plainly about that. And here's a surprise for you. Jesus had already emphatically told the Pharisees about this. It's not a surprise at all. These woes are a culmination of a a three-and-a-half-year ministry of telling them, of teaching them, of giving them examples, of asking questions they couldn't answer, of putting them in a position where they couldn't explain things so they could see the error of their ways. He'd already emphatically told the Pharisees about their need for a rightly tuned heart. Let's look at Matthew twelve thirty-three to 35
1: Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out his good treasure, what is good, And the evil man brings out his evil treasure, what is evil.
2: In context, Jesus had just healed a demon-possessed man who couldn't see or speak. Out loud to the crowd, the Pharisees said, Could it be that Jesus is the Messiah? But privately they were thinking, no wonder he can cast out demons. He's getting his power from Satan, the prince of demons. But Jesus lets them know he can read their thoughts. And he has this really blunt and brilliant reply in Matthew 12, 25 to 32, So here he continues by likening people to a tree. The health of the tree is known by its
0: fruit. Good sweet fruit doesn't come from a rotten tree. When you're all about appearance, you're not anything about fruitage. And so, see, health is from the inside out, just like with the cup, just like with the the whited sepulcher. All, All of those health comes from the inside out. And Jesus is saying that, if you are evil what comes out of your mouth is inevitably going to reflect what's inside and what fills your heart we need to understand how emphatically jesus taught them about this condition of becoming whitewashed tombs of being so full of destruction and disgrace and death and corruption that you just need to, to, to stay away. You just need to stay away. Their leadership tragedies back then were precursors to potential Christian leadership tragedies throughout the age and today. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2.
1: But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. In the very next verses, the Apostle Paul gives two examples of false teachings, forbidding to marry and abstaining from meats. We look around in Christianity today and we see that very thing and it's so sad.
0: It is sad. And one of the big, big lessons that we want to learn from Jesus giving these seven woes to the Pharisees is that religious leadership is susceptible to everything that Jesus told them they were misconstruing. They mm. took what was pure and reshaped it into what was convenient and what was um, self-aggrandizing, self-aggrandizing. That's the word, self-aggrandizing. They took the purity and they corrupted it. And Jesus doesn't stop. He just keeps calling it out.
1: How do we combat the possibility of becoming hypocrites like the scribes and Pharisees? Do what they didn't do. Listen to Jesus. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, For they shall see God.
0: You hear the simplicity and the clarity and the peacefulness of that simple statement. Blessed are the pure in heart. To be pure in heart is to be driven by intentions that are uncontaminated by earthly ills, completely opposite of whitewashed tombs. It is to have Jesus' own conscience being the primary influence for what we truly desire to happen. How often do I think about it that, in those terms? Do I think about it in terms of, am I following Jesus's conscience, or am I just following Rick's conscience because Rick really knows what he wants? And you know, and it's so easy to go down that other road. Jesus's conscience should be our primary influence for what we truly desire to happen. For us, purity of heart doesn't always translate into purity of action because we're broken, we're, we're, we're imperfect. But without purity of heart, without having the heart truly desiring that which is pure, we're never going to get there. So you need that as a starting point. So what's the blessed result of a pure heart? It is to see God. And I'll tell you, this is magnificent, but it is no easy task. Let's look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 to 3.
1: Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure.
2: Striving for purity is of critical importance, as you described, Rick. Ceremonial cleansings and whitewashed tombs, these showed a false outward purity, but they were spiritually dead on the inside. You're lost, Pharisees. Jesus had great compassion for their blindness, but there's nothing else he could do at this point.
0: Yeah, yeah. It had, they had gone beyond. They'd gone beyond that point of no return. And he's just saying, here's where you are. Here's where you have ended. And we're going to see that in the next woe. But yeah. before we get to the next woe, let's finish this one. So Jonathan, seven woes and seven lessons.
1: Words and actions are windows into people's hearts. When Jesus called out the scribes and Pharisees in this sixth woe, he was pointing to the deadness of their spiritually driven conscience, Simply stated, if one's life is full of death, deceit and destruction, the external trappings of that life will not change the internal drive. How well tuned is my conscience? And that really needs to be our most important question. What about me? Sometimes Jesus had to say difficult things. It's important to remember that these woes aren't condemning them to eternal torment. We've examined the scriptural hell in many podcast episodes. Check them out. The woe to the Pharisees was that they were about to miss the great blessing which God had promised to the Jewish nation, namely that of chief association in Messiah's kingdom.
2: The Pharisees couldn't recognize what they were losing, even though Jesus tried everything to show them. Woe unto you was said sympathetically and with pity.
0: And that's the core of who Jesus was and is, sympathetic with pity, doing the will of his father and nothing else. The depth of the corruption of these Jewish leaders, it was absolutely staggering. Their entire basis for leading was founded in craft and corruption.
1: After all we have seen thus far, it's hard to believe that there's still one more woe from Jesus. What? could
0: he possibly add the sobering beauty of all of this is that jesus said all of what needed to be said in an appropriate and timely manner always remember these very leaders were as he spoke to them as he was speaking to them they were plotting his death jesus knew this and understood that this would be his last opportunity to confront them he wasted no time or effort and deliver it a heartbreaking, a heartbreaking but necessary final message. So we come to the seventh woe, Matthew 23,
1: 29-33. Woe, or what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, scribes, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would never have joined them in killing the prophets. But in saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. Snakes, sons of
0: vipers, how will you escape the judgment of Gehenna? So Jesus is now addressing them as a brood of vipers. For at that moment, at that very moment, they were lying in wait to strike their
1: prey. Jesus is again referencing this serpent as their father, Satan, the murderer from the beginning.
2: And Jesus said, go ahead, finish what your ancestors started. It's interesting how Jesus had this same attitude with Judas, the same way. Once Jesus brought out, he knew his heart condition. He said, what you must do, do quickly in John 13, 27. He's tried everything. And then once he sees there's no possible way that they're going to return, then time moves on. Let's get this over
0: with. Move on. Jesus essentially said, like you said, Julie, go ahead, finish what your ancestors started. I, I know what you're up to. And, and we know that emphatically because after Jesus raised Lazarus, the scribes and the Pharisees took counsel under the guise of protecting the people, and they sought to trap him. Let's look at John 11:53 53 to see what their conclusion was after—wait, wait, wait, wait now— after he raises somebody from the dead who's been dead for four days and has begun to decompose. After that miracle, here's what they say. So from that day on, they plan together to kill him. There you go. And so in this woe, Jesus knows that. And he says, go ahead, finish, finish what your ancestors started. He knows them and he's exposing them. And no surprise, prophecy would again ring clear as the ultimate sentence for an arrogant and rebellious people. We're going to go to Jeremiah and listen to the depth of the sentence in this Old Testament prophecy, Jeremiah 7, 13 to 15.
1: And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh, I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast
0: out all of your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. So the message is, I will cast you out of my sight. That's the message in Jeremiah. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to that in a moment.
2: What is Shiloh, he said, as I did to Shiloh. That was a religious center of Israel for 400 years. It's where the tabernacle was, the Ark of the Covenant was, but it was eventually overrun by the Philistines and then later by the Assyrians. So the lesson here is, if it could happen to the religious center like Shiloh, it could happen to Jerusalem, and it did. In 70 AD, it was destroyed, as Jesus predicted. Jesus did everything
1: he could for the Pharisees to see who he was, He performed irrefutable miracles. He taught like no one had before. He fulfilled prophecies. He posed questions they couldn't answer. And now time was up.
0: Their opportunity was over. It was. They're in a position where they've decided on what they're going to do in spite of every godly indication that had surrounded them for three and a half years. So, Julie, let's sum up the problem.
2: Well, the problem is the scribes and Pharisees had become hypocritical and blind leaders. The law's true meaning was swallowed up in their self-indulgent and self-elevated lives as they spiritually starved the people that they were tasked to shepherd. And finally, their bragging, blinded, hypocritical hearts would now strike as they claimed superiority over their ancestors at the same time planning to kill their messiah
0: you can't make that up. It's so dramatic. And folks, yet we want to be alert to look around ourselves and say, do I see any of that going on with the true sacredness of the word of God being polluted in one way or another? No surprise, Jesus had spoken these truths before to these leaders in the parable of the landowner
2: a quick summary in this parable the landowner representing god sent his servants representing the prophets to check on the condition of his vineyard that represented israel and he had rented that to farmers or vine growers and both times the owner sent servants to collect his share of the crop the vine growers these farmers that were renting it either beat these servants or even killed them so the uh, owner finally sends his own son representing Jesus, thinking, surely they'll respect my son.
1: We pick up the account at the parable's end after they killed, yes, even the son, and plotted to take his inheritance, Matthew 21, 40-45. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? The Pharisees said to him, He will bring those wretches to the wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season.
2: Um, that was the right answer, but did they just unknowingly proclaim their own downfall? Because those other vine growers would end up being the Gentiles.
1: Jesus picks up on what they said and he responds. Continuing in verse 42, Jesus said to them, Do you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's quoted from Psalm 118.22. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. They were the farmers or vine growers in the story.
0: And so what they did, you're you're right, Julie, what they did is they proclaimed their own destiny. They followed the story, they gave the right answer, and Jesus said, and this is you, because you have rejected me. He did everything he could, and now at the very end, this last woe, Jesus is saying to them unequivocally, you're just like your fathers who went and killed the prophets. And you say, if we had lived in those days, we would have never done such a thing. And yet, they killed the prophets. You're killing the Messiah. Let's weigh that out, shall we? I mean, there is a dramatic, dramatic sense of the, the irony and the hypocrisy and the blindness and, and the viper-like activity that we're seeing in them, and Jesus brings it all out in these seven woes. So now, let's go back to Matthew 23. After going through a few more details, this account ends. This account ends with a heart-wrenching lament from Jesus. And, and as we go through this next scripture, put in your heart and your mind Jesus feeling the loss of the nation of Israel. He knows they're rejecting him. He knows it was prophesied. He knows it has to happen. And he knows of the pain and suffering that's going to come because they were so hard-hearted. So he knows these things. And he, this is Jesus. He feels it. So as we listen to this verse, keep that in your mind. Matthew 23, 37 to 39.
1: Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that was quoted from Psalm 118, 26.
2: Talking about the compassion of Jesus and how woe is an exclamation of grief and pity and being heartbroken. Luke 19, 41 to 44 records how Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. He did all he could and then acquiesced that this was the Father's will. But it didn't mean he wasn't upset about it.
0: He was upset. He's heartbroken at their rejection because he has done everything the Father has given him to do. He's given them a plain pathway to spirituality, and they flat-out rejected it. So where does that bring us? Here's the equation. A glorious opportunity squandered will always bring the tragedy of regret. And that's what he's saying. You're going to suffer the tragedy of regret that's commensurate with the glorious opportunity that you have been given.
1: A parallel to what happened to the Jewish religious leaders is the weeping and gnashing of teeth that will take place in the day of judgment. Christians who realize that they were so far off from God's love and mercy for
0: all mankind will have deep regret for not following God's word. We see so many things culminating as we wrap up these seven woes, and the final proclamation afterwards. It really is a very, very touching, very powerful, very poignant moment in all of history as Jesus is wrapping up this chapter by telling them exactly where they are and what they have earned for themselves, and none of it is very good.
1: How do we combat the possibility of becoming hypocrites like the scribes and Pharisees? Do what they didn't do. Listen to Jesus. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be
0: called sons of God. Again, a simple, simple statement. Blessed are peacemakers. They are the sons of God. To be a peacemaker is to be a reflection of Jesus and break down barriers between those who are at odds so they cannot just coexist, but they can fully integrate Being a peacemaker enables us to truly appreciate what Jesus came to do, as well as to work alongside him in the privilege. You see, the Pharisees were all about peacekeeping with the Roman government. That's what they were all about. They were keeping the peace with the Roman government and feeding their egos at the same time. And the peasants could stay the peasants. The sinners could stay the sinners. They didn't care. The Beatitude says, blessed are the peacemakers, those who bring peace those who are at odds together. And that's the lesson that they completely missed. They completely missed the beauty and value of bringing the people to God as shepherds were supposed to do. And when we look at this, what we see is Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker for all time. There is no, in all of the history, written and unwritten, of humanity, there is no peacemaker like Jesus. Romans 5, 18 to 19.
1: So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous.
0: So you have this beautiful, beautiful picture of transgression and condemnation because of Adam, and you have righteousness and justification because of Jesus. There is a perfect balance. All men who were plunged into sin are taken out of sin by Jesus, and yet he's the one they crucified. So when we look at this and we see the power Of Jesus life and we see him showing them these woes and telling them precisely this is how you have misrepresented God Almighty we need to take that lesson and understand Jesus did pay the price so salvation could be free for every human who had ever lived and that included those Pharisees he felt for them it was a powerful lesson that we cannot minimize because these woes showed us what happens when human thinking takes godly principles and and just runs its own direction. So Jonathan, finally, seven woes and seven lessons.
1: Whenever any kind of power or opportunity is presented, it is inevitably accompanied by great responsibility. Jesus showed us the blunt and subtle pitfalls that can easily plague us as they plagued the scribes and Pharisees. Let us be ever aware to seek the sincerity of truth over hypocrisy and to see with spiritually sound eyesight over the self-imposed blindness of ego. Let us not elevate ourselves over our peers, but instead humbly follow our Master.
0: Seven woes for the scribes and the Pharisees. And in these woes, what we have are tremendous, profound lessons of earthly sinful thinking and action versus the spirituality that God requires. Each of us has the opportunity to look at these things and say, what direction am I going to go in this way and in that way? Am I going to get stuck in those woes or can I learn to rise above such things and honor God daily? Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, can my marriage be a happily ever after? We'll talk about that next week.